Welcome to the discussion, New Approaches to Federal Human Capital, sponsored by Ascendre. Here's today's moderator, Tom Timmon. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Tracy Demartini, the Chief Human Capital Officer at the General Services Administration. And later we'll hear from Jerry Buckholz, the Strategic Advisor at Ascendre and former Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA. Ms. Demartini, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. Happy to be here. All right, let's talk about the large-scale 50,000-foot view of some of the chief human capital officer career development, talent development, skill acquisition issues that you see from your standpoint for GSA, and especially GSA as an agency which provides so many other services to the rest of the federal government. Yeah, I love that question because it gives me the chance to brag about um, human capital and particularly human capital specialists because for many years now, that particular occupation has been on GAO's watch list as something that is um, being looked at as a critical needs occupation that the government has not done a terrific job investing in. At GSA, I am incredibly lucky to have a workforce of 300 talented specialists. We take care of a workforce of 12,000 employees spread across 11 regions, including the National Capital Region here in DC. And we touch every facet of the government's most important important resource, our workforce. And it's probably no shock to anyone that's listening in and follows government trends, but you know, employees have taken a beating over the past several years, and we are doing all we can to start with the human capital work group and our employees to make sure we are attracting and hiring and keeping and training the best possible employees all across government. And let's map this across the gap that might exist between the skills that the agency needs and the skills, first of all, of the workforce that you have in place. How do you address that? Because that seems to be a problem where the skills are decaying faster, the acquisition of skills is getting slower, and so agencies are in a little bit of a catch-up game here. Yes, because HR was traditionally a very transactional business. It was more just about processing paper, paying people, enrolling them in benefits. Really at the heart of it, good human capital shops are strategic partners. We have to figure out what skills each agency needs and when they need to acquire them and how we get the right people into the right jobs. One of the things that makes GSA probably the best agency in government is we are so unique. We have so many in-demand occupations under the GSA umbrella. We're the perfect laboratory to see how to make this work. Everything from cybersecurity and IT specialist to acquisition specialist um, to then other other topics or other um, occupations that people don't think about, such as horticulturists or ac uh, architects. You know, we have the whole range of services. And what we are trying to do at GSA is think about how we hire differently, how we train differently, because we are now in the 21st century. And people are going to not go into the building five days a week. They're not going to come to DC. Um, we are going to be spread across the United States. And one thing we've learned during this pandemic is we can do that without missing a beat because our productivity has been off the chart since March of 2020. And we are really seeing another um, another year ahead of us that's going to show more of the same. People staying engaged, people getting hired and sticking with the agency and doing what we do best, which is serving the business needs of the federal government. And talk about how you assess the skills development that is needed. And I'll just make an example, say, of acquisition. Mm -hmm. And over the years, that has shifted greatly from products and hardware to much more service buying as as what federal agencies buy through GSA's vehicles is more and more service oriented or the collapse of the GSA multiple award schedules into one big schedule. These result in needs for different skills among people in that occupation, just as one example. And how do you yeah. assess what's going to be needed in the future and start to move people to what you will need based on where they are now? I think that's a great example. And I think this goes back to what I, I said at the beginning, which is really figuring out how to change the mindset of the federal government and specifically employment in federal government. You know, gone are the days where you come in and you do one job and you do it for 30 years. 
we have to do a better job explaining to people that you're going to have to constantly be training and retraining for the job that you have to meet the demands of the work ahead of you now and not 10 or 15 years ago. So with regards to acquisition, much like human resources, it's changed from purely transactional to buying goods and services to being more strategic. So we need individuals with critical thinking skills, with resilience, the ability to adapt and figure out how to make things happen, not only in a global market, but nationwide. Um, we also need to have hiring managers that are truly understanding the skills needed in the people that they hire. It may not just be looking for people that understand one type of system or have a specific degree, but people that are willing to be trained Multi multiple times across their career and are willing to be flexible and resilient and grow into the jobs that are needed and not the ones they were necessarily hired for. And in some ways, I guess that complicates the hiring process, because if you know you need this specific skill for this specific job, it's easier to screen people. But if you're looking for people that can, say, change jobs or change skills every couple of years, 18 months, whatever it might be, that's a little bit harder quality, I think, to assess in people when you are bringing in talent. Fair enough? That is very fair, but that is also why it's not just about the talent that we're hiring. It's really about focusing on the training of managers. We have to make sure federal managers understand that their people are their strongest asset. And when, say, they are looking to reskill them for a certain job, they have to be able to provide that training to mentor them, to give them specific instructions and set them up for success. I think that's where there's been a disconnect, particularly in the last 10 or 12 years, where you see training budgets are the first things to be cut in any agency. When we went through sequestration, uh, gosh, it's like seven years ago now, seven, eight years ago, the first thing that everyone did was cut their training budgets. And we're going to pay for that mistake for years to come because you have to continually invest and reinvest in your workforce if you're going to keep their skills up to date and sharp. And I'm very passionate about leadership training. I think the government needs to start focusing on hiring people for their leadership ability and their management skills and not just their technical skills. So we actually can break through what I think is um, one of the things that's been holding us back. And that is focusing on very strong, good leadership in the civil service. And in the sense that leadership itself needs to be trained from time to time and hiring managers need new skills and it's not just an HR function, as you point out, but it's really spread across the different missions who ultimately approve the people they hire. Are there any technological or shortcut cost-cutting types of methodologies so that when you, you don't have to say anymore that, yeah, training budgets got cut when training used to imply going somewhere, sitting in a hotel and ha having yeah. an expensive course giver? That is actually one of the best things that has happened to the government this year. I think actually the entire workforce, um, private sector and public, is we've learned how to embrace technology and to do things differently. So it's not about, as you said, sitting in a conference room for five days, you know, listening to an instructor drone on. We're learning how to use Zoom or Google Chats to have connections across the country with colleagues and learn what they're doing and how to apply it to our workplace. We're really big fans of coaching at GSA, and you can connect people with an executive coach you know, from their living room. They can dial up and have those conversations. We're also looking at ways to embrace the cohort approach, which is getting executives or leaders from different branches of GSA together to figure out how to solve common problems and make the agency stronger as a whole. These are things that I don't think we would have given much thought to before the pandemic because everyone was used to just signing up for classes and going away for three days or five days. Now we understand training is something that's continual and needs and can be done from anywhere. Yeah, I was going to say that continuous idea probably really plays in big here, especially in the upskilling or reskilling kind of milieu, because people need to be continuously reskilled or upskilled given the conditions you've described and how missions change and technologies change and what you're giving and serving up to the federal government at large is always changing. So yes, that yes. would seem to be a good way to do that efficiently. It is. And it also points to other areas that we can focus on on how to train people. So, again, since March of 2020, we've been onboarding brand new employees to federal service, some of whom have yet to step into their home agencies. So we're learning how to connect and train with them 
without ever formally meeting them in person because it is an investment to make a hire and it's our duty to groom that workforce to stay. And I always tell my Chico colleagues when we talk, it's not about making people stay at one agency for their entire career. I want them to stay in the government and we are just gonna do ourselves justice if we continually train and invest in the employees we hire because then we're gonna have a stronger federal workforce no matter what agency they work in. And just describe a little bit more closely that onboarding process when people are not actually coming into physical facilities, because, you know, maybe it's one thing for experienced people changing jobs, but for new people, new to the workforce, it's kind of an odd situation. Yep, that is a that is very that's an understatement, Tom. The understatement of the year, and this is again where rubber meets the road for how leaders are grooming their new talent. So it's about that emotional intelligence that our leaders are able to display, staying connected with the employees, checking in on them. In the current environment, it's also taking into account there are stressors that they're dealing with on the home front, and without and without knowing them well enough because we haven't met them having to demonstrate some empathy and resilience. You know, we are very lucky at GSA. I have probably the best CIO in all of federal government. Um, and Dave Shive and his team have done a remarkable job preparing us for the pandemic because we have great technology, great laptops. We are able to ship things out all across the country. So folks have the tools and equipment that they need to hit the ground running on day one. And we're constantly reassessing and investing in those tools so people can stay connected. Because it's not just a connection of the person to the agency or to their boss, but also to the other people, the colleagues that they would normally- To their colleagues, to the customers, to get to accessing training. It is the entire um, scope of all of those things. And it is our responsibility as a leadership team to make sure people have the tools that they need to stay connected. And now that we're, gosh, coming into almost a year into this whole situation, you have a pretty good, I guess, base of knowledge to see how it's going. How is it going? So this is another favorite topic, Tom. And again, um, I'm a little bit biased because GSA is the coolest government agency. We're looking at ways to embrace this experience and figure out how we reshape federal um, the federal workspace period. Let's be honest, we are not going back five days a week. You know, we've had these experiments under different administrations where people try to increase telework and then decrease telework. We have demonstrated that the federal government can work remotely, most jobs, and do it for almost a year and be seamless. And those of us that work for agencies that are forward thinking, that make investments in technology, that embrace the ability to work differently and to reshape how we work as a United States government, we're seeing that pay um, huge dividends because our managers know how to manage a work, a remote workforce at GSA. Even before the pandemic, we had about 40% of our regular workforce teleworking on average two to three days a week. We have teams that are dispersed in different regions. So for us, there are still some things we could do better and we're always looking to continuously improve, but it was an easy switch for us. I look at some of the other agencies that really tried to roll back telework, didn't invest in technology, or were afraid to use tools like Zoom and Google Meets, and they had a horrendous time getting their folks to stay connected and to continue doing work. So for those, those CIOs that are forward thinking, those CFOs that are making the necessary investments in hiring and technology, their foresight really paid off during this difficult time. All right, good place to take a break on. We're going to pause here briefly. My guest today is Tracy DiMartini. She's the Chief Human Capital Officer at the General Services Administration. I'm Download the Federal News Network app and take the news that matters to you and your agency's mission on the go. Download the app to find out what a new administration will mean for federal employees and contractors. Download the app to find out when you and your coworkers will return to the office. Download the app to learn about changes to your pay and benefits. The Federal News Network app. Sponsored by WEPA. WEPA. Group term life insurance for feds by feds. 
Welcome back to our discussion, New Approaches to Federal Human Capital, sponsored by Ascendre here on Federal News Network. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. My guest today is Tracy Demartini. She is the Chief Human Capital Officer at the General Services Administration. And before the break, we were talking about onboarding and the issue of getting people inculcated when they have to do so remotely. But there's another older issue that predates the pandemic that almost goes back to the 1918 pandemic, and that is how long it takes the federal government to hire people. And that one always seems impervious to correction. It's something like 80 days now. Mm-hmm. So what? how do you view that problem? And are there some solutions, both from a process design standpoint and maybe a technological standpoint that can start to shave that off? Oh, again, Tom, fabulous topic. I almost, I wish I had my fellow Chicos on so we have many ideas on how to solve this issue. Um, I have to start by saying, I think the problem that people perceive is not what the problem actually is. And that is the system itself is not broken. It's actually a victim of our success. And here is why. Back when hiring reform kicked off in 2010, 2011, the purpose was to make it easier to apply for a federal job. And that's great. That intent was noble. And we certainly want to get people with different experiences from different parts of the country applying. Unfortunately, if you make it too easy, the floodgates are open. So for any one job that's posted in the federal government, you could get hundreds, if not thousands of applications. So at GSA, as an example, from January 1st, 2020 until September 30th, 2020, we posted around 1,300 jobs. And for those job postings, we received over 66,000 applications. So we're hiring fewer than 2% of the people that apply. And so, of course, the other 98% are going to think the system's broken, but it's a volume issue because everyone still wants to work for the federal government. And when we're not relying on people to post knowledge, skills and abilities, essays, and we have very broad requirements, you're going to let in lots of folks, which, again, that's that's okay. We want to have a strong competitive circle. But HR offices aren't equipped to deal with that kind of volume. You know, when we were shrinking the federal government, a lot of the back office operations are the ones that get cut, HR being one of them. So I have a 12,000 person workforce at GSA. I have 300 staff in my HR office. We don't just do hiring. We do labor and employee relations. We administer benefits. We do HR strategy. We do um, we assist with payroll because our CFO handles payroll, but we deal with tax deductions. So not all 300 people are doing hiring. So it's a smaller subset to handle 66,000 applications. That is one of the issues. And USA Jobs is often unfairly blamed for this problem. But the system is working. We just need to build in and keep investing in better assessments so the strongest candidates get through and maybe work on our job descriptions a bit more. Because I do still think there is a valid argument that the way we post jobs is okay, but the descriptions themselves still could use a lot of work. We need to implement those plain language rules. And how the does, other, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, how, how does the idea of hiring people on the basis of skills, more emphasis there than perhaps on some of the knowledges or degrees that they might have? Can that maybe You know, I, there was a recent executive order that said that we did not require college degrees or, or it, was, it was inferring that we relied too much on that when actually we don't. Um, only certain occupations require degrees such as medical doctors. And I don't know about you, Tom, but I do want my doctor to have a medical license. At least um, my brain surgeon. Right, right. And, you know, what we're looking at, though, are skills. And one of my favorite examples are cybersecurity and technology. We can't compete with the, with the private sector. You know, we cannot pay those wages. So if someone is graduating from college and they get a job offer from GSA, or a job offer from Google, I guarantee you they're going to go to Google. Now, that doesn't mean that at some point in their career, they may not want to come into the government. And that's why agencies like GSA um, do try and get creative. We have a wonderful program at GSA called the Technology Transformation Service, which allows people that are in the private sector to come spend a year or two with us to bring their corporate knowledge into government. But that's not going to be at the entry level. That's going to be more senior people. 
But there are some trade-offs that we have to understand people are going to make. And if I could just, you know, go back to my earlier example about what we've done in the government to basically harm ourselves. We talk about the recruitment issue and about not being able to attract the right people. Well, everyone needs to remember we've had quite a few pay freezes over the past decade. So we have not kept pace with the pay market um, in, in across the world and across the United States. That has had an unfortunate consequence. That's also why we lose people. We've also seen our benefits, which are a wonderful thing to attract people into federal service, but they're expensive. People don't often think about the contributions they make. So for our new employees in government, they're contributing 4% of their salary, over 4% to their own retirement. Plus they're paying a hefty fee for their benefits. Plus they're not making really fair market wages. So it's going to be a difficult choice for some people to make. And unfortunately, some of them choose to go to the private sector. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's going to be a perennial issue and always subject to debate and hopefully some major reform might happen to kind of reset all this. It's been quite a few decades since. But I want to get back to one issue on the you mentioned on the volume of resumes that come in, volume of people that apply. Many years ago, there was a trend I read about toward you know, machine reading of resumes to kind of screen people, which mm -hmm. is kind of a crude way to to screen out people. And I'm not sure that ever really caught on. But are there artificial intelligence or any kind of technological approaches that can, in a fair way, in a way that gets you the people you really want, speed up that whole sifting through the volume and then therefore people won't be waiting so many months? So the answer there is a firm maybe. We are certainly looking at ways to increase the use of AI, but we also have to pay attention to merit system principles and certain obligations that we have to make sure we're not overlooking people um, that have extra what we call preference to come into service. I'm thinking specifically of our veterans. You know, we need to make sure that we're properly applying the rules and regulations in Title V to make sure the people that deserve to be on those certificates are there. And this also goes back to the issue of making sure we're clearly articulating what are the skills that we need. Because if we don't say that up front, people know how to answer the questions on USA Jobs. Everyone's an expert. So you still need to have that human HR specialist comparing the resume to the answers. That, and when you have a volume of 66,000 resumes, that's going to take some time. And what about the idea of people that apply that may not be right for this particular job? Is there a fast and efficient way of retaining them perhaps so that you can have a pre-staged almost pipeline for when some other more appropriate job opens up? So OPM is actually, um, they're doing some really innovative stuff. And I have to say, I did work at OPM at one point in my career, and I am so angry at the rap that they get because I think they do an amazing job with very limited resources. And one of the things that they are doing is looking at a way to create certificates for certain occupations. So one that we're piloting now is looking at data analysts. That is a new and emerging skill in government. So we're finding out ways to um, hire for those jobs and say I'm hiring for one at GSA and I get a certificate with 100 talented data analysts. Instead of hiring one and throwing out the other 99, I am now able to share those other 99 applicants with my colleagues and other agencies that have jobs at the similar grade and similar description. This is something HR has wanted to do forever, and it is complicated because many of us have our own HR systems that don't talk to each other. And OPM really took a lead on trying to pull this pilot off, and I'm excited to see what the results will be. Interesting. Well, I think if GSA can move, say, contract price negotiations to the task order level and get them out of contract award level, anything is possible here. There we go. <laughs> yes. And just uh, in the time we have remaining, talk about the HR function itself, the CHCO, the Chief Human Capital Officer, Chief Learning Officer, the ancillary jobs. Just give us a brief overview of how that's all changing and trying to keep up with the times. So I, I think one of the best jobs you can have in government is to be a Chico or a CLO because we are involved in every decision that impacts the government because we're dealing with our people. I also think that it is absolutely imperative for Chicos to form a united front with their CFOs and their CIOs because those are the tasks that I say, you know, people think they're the less sexy jobs. They are what get the business of government done. And when you have a Chico, a CFO, and a CIO 
that are a united front and know how to move mountains to get people the supplies they need, to get people the technology they need and the workforce that they need, that agency is gonna be successful. And I'm incredibly lucky. I've worked for some fabulous, with some fabulous CIOs and CFOs. Um, the Chicos are fighting for their place at the table because unfortunately everyone's afraid of money and they're afraid of IT, but everyone thinks they can do HR until they try to and they get, you know, they get sued. Then they realize, never mind. But Chicos are the heartbeat of any agency. And I'm really, really looking forward to the day where everyone embraces that because definitely the agencies that invest in their people and invest in their Chico, they are the ones that are going to blow their results out of the water. All right. Sounds like maybe a new TV pilot show. Better call Tracy. Uh, <laughs> better call the Chico. Yes. We'll pause here for a short break. I want to thank my guest, Tracy Martini, the Chief Human Capital Officer at the General Services Administration. Next, we'll be joined by Jerry Buckholtz, Strategic Advisor at Ascendre and former Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Calling all D.C. metro area educators. Are you looking for a way to create a sense of normalcy for your students? Hero Squad, formerly Pennies for Patients, is a flexible and fun service learning opportunity presented by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. This year, students and staff can run an SEL-enhanced and STEM-focused program raising funds and awareness for blood cancers in a fully virtual setting. Visit Herosquad.org for more information and to sign your school up. That's Herosquad.org for more information. Welcome back to our discussion. New approaches to federal human capital sponsored by Ascendre here on Federal News Network. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Joining me now is Jerry Buckholtz. She's a strategic advisor for Ascendre and the former chief human capital officer at NASA. Jerry, good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I'll start with you with the same first question I started with Tracy, and that is judging from your experience at NASA and now as an advisor to numerous entities on this whole human, human capital issue. What do you see as the major issues, the major problems and challenges that agencies are going to have in that talent hunt? Uh, new administration, new policies, new years coming on. What's ahead? A couple of things. Um, the federal government is really overdue for a retool, more modern tools that help them manage shocking workload when it comes to hiring people, better assessments to help them get to those individuals that are a good mission match for their organization. And then instead of waiting until people's uh, skill sets have become antique, adopting a policy of continuous development and growth so that their workforce is continuously reskilling to match the mission that's coming down the road in a year, two years, five years, etc. And there are a lot of things that agencies can do to address these specific issues. Certainly there's going to be a period of time where there will be important hiring happening. Um, perhaps not large volume, especially at first, but those hires that need to happen in the shorter term are going to set the uh, tone, set the direction for several years to come. And when you mention a whole new set of tools, maybe go into that a little bit. What kinds of tools are these technology tools? Are they skills on the part of Chico's and their staffs or maybe both? Probably both, um, certainly technology tools. There's so many advances now. We've done 10 years of evolution in virtual work in 10 months because of what has happened. Where we are today is where we were gonna be a decade from now anyway, but it happened in this really, really compressed time window. And of course, there are two sides to that. There's the, oh my gosh, look what we did. But what we can't do now is sort of fall off of that advancement because it is extraordinary. It completely changes the world of work, how work is accomplished, how people interact with each other. And then from my topic area, how we bring people into the workforce. 
So tools that take advantage of these new skills that everyone has worked so hard to gain over the last 10 months are really what's needed for the government to go forward. And also what all applicants for any job are going to be expecting in the future. There's that. Then there's the issue of uh, abundant workload. HR offices, I don't think people realize how many people apply for federal government jobs in the hundreds and thousands for every job. And this, of course, is work workload for those HR offices. So things like uh, AI, artificial intelligence, that helps with the management of that very, very large volume of applications for federal jobs, really intelligent workflow that makes the handoffs from the HR office to the manager work very smoothly in every efficiency assessment like Lean Six Sigma that I ever did, it was always the handoffs between the HR office and the hiring manager that added time to the process. Really well thought through workflows and technology that supports those workflows can really, really help with that. And then the idea of continuous skilling. You know at NASA, people spend a lot of time waiting for airplanes. They traveled a lot, some farther away than others. And so the idea that I always had was while our workforce that has to get to the airport two hours early and wait for their airplane, while they are waiting, that would be a great time for them to knock out their mandatory annual training so that they have the opportunity to be reskilling, updating their skill, updating their knowledge base, during periods of time where they literally cannot be doing anything else. So it's things like that, strategies like that, that support this momentous change that has happened in terms of virtual work and enhance the employment experience, the applicant experience um, that I think are going to make the big, big difference. Yeah, that idea of the applicant experience, that's something where the government is always getting knocked on, whether it's yeah. jobs, gov and so on. And what are contemporary expectations of applicants? Because some of the high technology firms have very long hiring processes where you interview sometimes with four, five, six people, and yet the government gets the knock for being slow. What do you think is the reality and what's a good model for all of that? That is such a good point. And I think one that is not made often enough. It takes 18 months to hire an astronaut. That is the right amount of time. The 80-day hiring model is for high-volume positions where there is an abundant applicant pool co-located with the work site. That's when you should try to keep your hiring um, um, where fast adds value. But when you are hiring someone in a key position where not just skill set, but also leadership ability and mission match are equally critical to the success in that position, then you need to take your time and make sure that the individual that you're bringing on board, that you're making a 30-year, $3 million commitment to the US taxpayer is in fact the right person for that job. So this idea that faster is better, I do not believe that. In some cases, yes, faster adds value, but not in every case. And that's what those high-tech firms are doing. They are looking for the person who's going to fit into their culture and support their values for their mission success. And when you mentioned artificial intelligence as a way to help speed up processing the many, many thousands of applicants that a federal agency might get for a given job, uh, it strikes me, though, that that doesn't absolve the hiring mission manager or the chief human capital officer function or the HR function from having really well thought out requirements. Otherwise, you simply speed up processing the wrong thing and maybe not gain anything. So you've got to you got to be in charge of what that AI is giving you with knowledge and really good requirements? Absolutely. And AI is not intended to replace human judgment. AI is intended to support a business process. 
So for example, one way AI can be really, really effective is, you know, you have your applicant who applies and responds to a questionnaire and that questionnaire is scored. Then you can have AI that reads the resume and scores it using the same criteria. So where you have a situation where the applicant self-scoring and the AI match, you know that that is a, a reasonable assessment of that resume where there is a big difference in the scoring plus or minus that tells you that that resume needs human eyeballs. So that's where it can really speed things up because if the self-assessment and the AI are reading through thousands of application and your policy says, if there is a variance of more than a certain number of points, that resume has to be reviewed by an HR professional, that's where you get to AI supporting a really good workflow. Yes, and just to pull on that thread a little bit more, because if you are looking for people not just with specific technical skills, but also, as you mentioned, leadership, the ability yeah. to lead other people, to think creatively or whatever it might be, that's a little bit tougher to get at in an automatic reading of a resume. So you've got to, at some point, decide you know, really, what is this telling me? Yes, um, those kinds of skills um, are best assessed through a structured interview. And certainly technology can support structured interviews. We're interviewing right now, and it's great. So structured interviews can do that. And there are tools out there, certainly assessments where you can do pre-recorded interviews that are assessed by um, subject matter experts. There's a wide variety of ways of doing that. And then those scores can be recorded into um, a, a staffing system that will then rate and rank your candidates after they've done their variety of assessments. Um, certainly, uh, verbal communication is one that is very, very hard to assess on paper. Sure. And I wanted to ask you also about the idea of updating your workflow and having a contemporary speedy workflow. In your experience, what discretion do agencies have in changing workflow, optimizing workflow for HR and the hiring function versus what they have to do statutorily? So it's interesting because the rules and regulations have to do with process you know, you must open a vacancy announcement. It must be open for a certain number of days. It must have specific content. An HR professional who is certified must review the resumes, issue a certificate. A hiring manager must um, make the selection and it goes on like that. None of that is workflow. That's all regulatory steps. So the workflow comes in where you design the handoffs, where you establish windows of time to complete those steps. You know, what? how much time does it reasonably take a manager or an HR professional to accomplish this work? Um, and as I said, in my experience, the thing that adds so much time is the handoffs between. And that's where tools, automation, um, communication can really help uh, narrow those windows down significantly. So For everybody example, in the- I can help with rating of applications. So everybody in the chain here then needs to start getting comfortable with some automation in terms of that workflow with the understanding that they'll still be legal with what they do. Yes, absolutely. And that's why it's really important to be to go through your process of selecting your tools with great thought and care and understanding, uh, you know, and ensuring that the tools that you select are compliant with federal law, rule and regulation, but also that it supports your organizational goals and objectives. Different agencies need different things. An agency of 99 employees, like when I worked um, at the Office of Federal Housing Enterprise Oversight, it does not need a gigantic 
um, HR system, but a big department like the Department of Commerce that's trying to have some consistency of employment experience because that's one of the things they value. Between their different bureaus, um, it, it does need more structure and a bigger system to manage that. All right. On that note, we'll take a short break. My guest today is Jerry Buckholtz, strategic advisor to Asundre and former chief human capital officer at NASA. And I'm Tom Temin. This discussion is new approaches to federal human capital sponsored by Asundre here on Federal News Network. Download the Federal News Network app and take the news that matters to you and your agency's mission on the go. Download the app to find out what a new administration will mean for federal employees and contractors. Download the app to find out when you and your coworkers will return to the office. Download the app to learn about changes to your pay and benefits. The Federal News Network app. Sponsored by WEPA. WEPA. Group term life insurance for feds by feds. Welcome back to our discussion, New Approaches to Federal Human Capital, sponsored by Asundre here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Our guest is Jerry Buckholz, the strategic advisor at Asandre and former chief human capital officer at NASA. And Jerry, I want to talk about workforce planning and some of the aspects of that, including uh, we talk about skills development and skills needed in the future. How can HR and how can the other functions within the agency collaborate to really know what skills that agency will need going down the line? So collaboration is absolutely the key there. Um, one of the things that I did that worked out so very well for me was to build really good relationships with the CFO for sure and the CIO as well. And that triangle of people in an agency has so much power and influence. And if you can wrap the general counsel in as well, oh my gosh, that group of people together can really help the senior leaders of an agency be the best leaders of people that they can be. And at the end of the day, that is the ultimate goal of human capital management. So you have your HR processes, which is human resources, human capital management is all about influence and all about helping those leaders see things in new ways, apply people's solutions to longstanding problems, and to lead people to the very best of their ability. Because very few decisions are made inside the human capital office. All of those decisions are made by senior leaders. And if you can be that support, that help, that guide, you know, helping them to see that I, you know, I see that our mission is shifting. What kind of workforce needs to shift as well in order to ensure that on the day this new mission arrives, we have the people that can accomplish the mission. And it can be very funny. People will talk about innovation like it's this object. The only thing that can innovate is a human brain, you know, and people talk about mission accomplishment with regard to metrics, processes, procedures, workflow, etc. But none of those things actually accomplish work. Only people accomplish work. And in the press of business and the desire to document, to measure, sometimes that can be lost. And so what the human capital officer's job is to always keep the acknowledgement that nothing around here happens at all unless our people are all headed in the same direction. Sure. So, again, looking down the line, then is can the tool sets that we talked about earlier and the new processes, can they help all of these functions come together on these are the skills we're going to need and then we can get into well, can the current workforce be reskilled to that level? Do we need to hire and that whole dynamic? But first of all, how do you how do you predict and can the tools help? Tools can certainly help. At the end of the day, though, because federal government employees tend to have longer tenures, unlike the private sector, and because they have everything that happened before, everything that's happening now, and they can see because the change rolls out with 
the passing of a law or the issuing of regulation. These things are on a fairly smooth evolutionary track with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I have found that mostly they know. Deep down inside, mostly they know. What they need is some facilitation to really talk it out. Um, and then once you have that, it's, it can be the laying out of the actual implementation plan, chunking it out into reasonable work streams. You know, one thing that always really resonated with people in my experience were what we call sand charts. So you show one occupation uh, on the chart that's very large right now, but we know over time due to changes in automation and a shifting, that's going to go down over time. And if you look at that in a 10-year window and you take all your mission critical occupations and you sand chart them out, that starts to lay out a really nice hiring strategy for you. So that's the strategic thinking. And here, you know, there, there are certainly assessments and tools that can be used to help you work your way through that process. And depending on how large your organization is, you're going to need more tools if your organization is bigger. The other thing, though, that where uh, technology can really, really help, we have had this very bad habit of letting people's tools, their um, skills, and their occupations expire before we even sit back and think, oh, well, now what are we going to do with these people? Um, and some of that is we're just really, really hoping this change isn't going to happen totally normal human behavior. But at that point, it becomes such a challenge to reskill individuals who maybe have been doing their work the same way for 25, 30 years. And what you, what, so what we want to do is get to this idea of every day I continuously refresh my skills, that I have a personal commitment to professional development and the management structure of my organization has that same commitment. And most importantly, my supervisor has that commitment to have an honest conversation with me about when I get to the point that I need some refresh and then to provide me with the opportunity to begin to refresh my skills. And that's where technology can really, really help. We've had fits and starts of success with um, you know, online learning systems in the federal government, but that's another place where some, you know, significant refresh needs to happen so that there is more uh, interactive, more online classes, more train the trainer, more peer to peer learning is very successful, especially with the first line supervisors. So there's a lot that can be done and, and definitely technologies that can support that. It strikes me then that the types of people that in the long run the government hires have to be maybe less tied to a particular skill at the moment than to the skill of being able to be reskilled. Absolutely. And that that can be a, a challenging thing to measure. And, you know, our, our hiring system does require us to measure. But this idea of being a continuous learner, of valuing the idea of continual learning, of having a sense of curiosity and resilience. Oh my gosh, I don't know how you make it through a federal government career without resilience. So it's, it's a quality, but it's also a skill. Um, and so you're looking for people who have a pattern of continuous learning, uh, self-directed continuous learning, because supervisors have, I think we counted once, 85 things they have to do every day in an eight-hour day. Yeah. So it's, you know, they can't be, you know, doing one-on-one -on -one coaching with every single employee all day long. So there's this component of independence, of curiosity, of desire to continuously grow and develop that everyone who works in the federal government needs to have regardless of their profession. And with respect to giving people the tools to acquire new skills, training used to be something that you did in a classroom or you went somewhere or someone came to the agency. But it strikes me that the technology we've been talking about 
and the one we're using, for example, right now, yes. offers new ways to be efficient at people getting new skills and for the agency to administer the tools people need to acquire those skills. Absolutely. And certainly there will always be a place for in-person learning. And, you know, ideally a blended model is the way to go because other things happen in training besides the acquisition of knowledge. Relationships are built, sometimes very important relationships. So for example, when you're doing leadership development and you want to build a cadre of people who can continue to support each other as they go through their leadership journey, some in-person is, is important. For reskilling and keeping professional skills up to date, this medium can work really, really well, especially if it's being done on a continuous basis. You do need to have good content. But one of the things that always held us back before was people struggled for this environment to be meaningful for them. And that's one of the huge changes that's happened across the entire planet in the last 10 months is people have found a way for this environment to be meaningful and to have meaningful human interactions in a virtual environment. And we need to grab a hold of that and integrate it into our human capital strategies and not just relax at the end of all of this and let it slip by the wayside, but say, this is not the end, this is the beginning. And we're gonna continue to build on that. So basically then if the government can get to do that, it will become a more competitive employer. Absolutely, because think about it now, regardless of where your physical facility is located, and the federal government has facilities in some really obscure places that it can be hard to find talent to work. But now the entire world, not just the United States, US citizens across the entire planet are now in your candidate pool. Spout, you know, military spouses deployed to foreign country, foreign service spouses, all kinds of people that were not, you were not available to you before. You know, so especially organizations that either have shift work or desire shift work, people who work, you know, in what is the middle of the night on the East Coast is the middle of the day in Australia. So, you know, there's that kind of thing going on too. So it's just a broader thinking of the implications and the plus sides of what we have all learned to do. All right. On that note, we will have to end the show. Thank you so much for great comments. We've been hearing from Jerry Buckholz. She's the strategic advisor at Ascendre and former chief human capital officer at NASA. Earlier, we heard from Tracy Martini, the chief human capital officer at the General Services Administration. I'm Tom Temin. You've been listening to Federal News Network. For more on this show, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Ascendre. Thank you for listening to the discussion, New Approaches to Federal Human Capital, sponsored by Asindre on Federal 